addition to your own Bible, you may find it on the back side of your message notes or beginning on page 793 in your worship Bible. Please follow along as I read. Now, while Paul was, willing, was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know therefore what, this, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Then being God's offspring, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, they mocked, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus, the Arapiagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. This is the word of God. You know, just this past Friday, the American Bible Society and the Barna Group released their findings in an annual report they've been making for a few years. It's called America's Most Bible-Minded Cities. America's Most Bible-Minded Cities. What do you think is the most 
Where do you think the most Bible-minded city is located? What do you think? In the South? Maybe, yeah. In the Midwest, maybe? Where do you think maybe the least Bible-minded cities are located? <laughs> yeah. Uh, you got a lot of feelings about those, don't you? Well, I'll tell you in a minute, yeah. The most Bible-minded city is Birmingham, Alabama, all right, in the South, right? And the least Bible-minded city, New Bedford and Providence, New Bedford, Mass., and uh, Providence, Rhode Island, Okay. And in fact, that they are central to where the where the survey shows is that uh, in the south, what some of you said in the south, um, southeast, I should say, uh, are the most Bible-minded, and the cities in the northeast are the least Bible-minded. In fact, all of the top ten cities of most Bible-minded are in the south, and all of the top ten cities, well, top ten cities that are least Bible-minded, well, they're not in the south, and most of them are in the east, northeast. There are three in the West and uh, um, one somewhere else as well. Uh, but anyway, but, uh, so it's, it, it, the South are the most Bible-minded. Cities in the Northeast are the least Bible-minded. And, and additionally, small cities are much more, according to the survey, much more Bible-minded than large cities are, you know. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of talking points out of this survey. I enjoyed kind of reading through it, uh, not, at least, not the least of which is, you know, how much do you trust surveys and what they teach you. But one of the things that struck me about this is this question, why is it that the Bible seems to have such little impact in the largest cities of our country and more impact in the smaller, more rural areas? Why is it the Bible seems to have such little relevance to people living in the larger cosmopolitan areas of our country? Is Christianity only relevant or mostly applicable to rural and less populated areas? Or is it that the Christian message is irrelevant? Or have we neglected to engage the larger public square? Have we neglected to have a voice in the larger public square? Because in the first century, they did not ignore the cities. The, the spread of Christianity was primarily an urban movement. The Apostle Paul and the spread of the church went from city to city, and the gospel went out from cities. In the first century, they were, they were seeking to shape the cultural uh, uh, ideas of the various cities, knowing that as cities go, so goes the rest. Exactly. Right. Um, and so we, we've been following with the, 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 the progression of the church as it's moved from the backwaters of the Roman Empire all the way towards the center of world power in Rome. That's what we're doing in the book of Acts, which we've been studying. We're now, of course, in the 17th chapter that Ruth just read for you. And as we see, Paul and his companions have spread the news of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. She mentioned it twice. She spread the news of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but they did not do it primarily in rural communities, sometimes, but not mostly, but rather initially in the primary cities of the region. We're now in the 17th chapter, and Paul finds himself in the most important cultural city of the entire Roman Empire. Did you see where she was? Athens. Athens was a city of past glory days. It was no longer the center of the, of the empire. Uh, Rome had conquered uh, Greece. But as you know, though Rome power conquered Greece, Greek culture conquered Rome, right? And the Romans just began to adopt the Greek gods for themselves. And the Rome, Greek culture was extremely proud. There were three major cultural centers. One was Rome, one was Athens, and one was Alexandria. Those were the three main cultural centers. And so here we are in, in Athens, which is the center of all, the birthplace, many would say, of Western civilization. 
Paul probably did not intend to go there. He got kind of shuffled across there and ended up there all by himself in that, little t- in that town. And we see him wandering around the city and beginning to engage with the cultural elite of that day. We shouldn't overlook this. He went right to where the philosophical ideas were being presented and dialogued. Didn't just preach on the corners, didn't just you know, stand on a soapbox, but dialogued with people about the, 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 the resurrection of Jesus and about this new movement. He engaged with the major thinkers of that day. The Apostle Paul engaged the intellectual elite of the city. He was not afraid to confront the ideologies and the philosophies of their day. He did it respectfully. He did it intelligently. He did not do it shrill. He did it open-mindedly, yet committed to the truth. And the Apostle Paul engaged this. I'm convinced that the gospel today is just as relevant to the cultural elite, to the big questions of life, as it ever was. In fact, I believe the gospel has the best answers to the biggest questions of life, the kinds of things that are influenced from the inside out that we don't often think about. Why am I here? Why do I believe in a moral right and wrong? Why can't I keep the moral right I want? What happens when I die? What, is life merely a collection of biological systems? What is this thing that I feel that I can't always explain? This feeling of love, this feeling of hope, this feeling of beauty. What is it about life? Christian message has answers to those questions which the cultural elite have a difficult time really coming to terms with. Now, when Paul went there and began to engage the cultural elite, as you may see as we looked through this, he was ridiculed by those people. His message was not accepted. They called him a, a babbler or a, a guy who scatters seed. It was, they insulted him because they thought he was just sharing ideas new. What is this new teaching? New was not considered good back then. New was suspect. The trustworthy teachings were the old teachings. And they said, what is this new teaching about some man risen from the dead? We need to hear about this. He was ridiculed for his beliefs. But the irony is this. Within 200 years after Paul was in Athens, the beliefs of the Christian worldview had utterly overturned that whole empire. So that within 200 years, the, the worldview espoused by Paul and the early Christians had turned the whole empire upside down, and these other philosophies had gone under the backwater. Now, in our day, we often feel frustrated because it feels as though no one cares about what Christians think anymore. We often will make mistakes. We'll get shrill, stand on soapboxes, fight about things that don't really matter, create enemies where we don't need to, right? We do that. We, you see it, you know. Or we hide in our own little enclave, circle of wagons, so to speak, just do our own little thing. We, you know, we, you know, we make our own little, we have our own little circle. We become sort of a subculture within ourselves, leaving the world out of it. Maybe there's a way for us in this day to do what Paul did and the church did in that day. Maybe there's a way for us to sensitively, intelligently, thoughtfully, carefully, faithfully, live out the truth of the gospel, share the message of the gospel in a way that makes sense to the cultural elite, to the intellectuals, 
I believe there is. So let's just take a, a look at this story. We're not going to answer all these questions. Uh, I've set you up for more than I can actually deliver today, I think. But in any case, we'll see that this is what the Apostle Paul has done. He's begun. The, Luke is telling us how Paul has engaged into the, the, cultural, the, the large cultural and philosophical questions of the day. So let's take a look at this text under three headings. First of all, the gospel in the marketplace. You can take these down in, 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 in your notes if you want. The gospel in the marketplace. I'm going to reread a little bit of what Ruth read for you just so you can hear it again. Now, Paul was waiting for them at Athens. Excuse me. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, keep in mind now, Paul's sort of in between. He's in limbo. He didn't mean to be here. He got dropped off here for his own safety. While Paul was waiting for them, his companions, in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace, the gospel in the marketplace at this point, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this bad babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus and saying, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in doing nothing except telling or hearing something new. You know, they spent all their time on Facebook pool. All right. Uh, he didn't seem to think very much of those people there. <laughs> all right, so what do, we, what do we learn in this section, in the gospel in the marketplace? First of all, you see, uh, 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 Paul is in the agora, the agora, okay? He's standing there. He's in the marketplace, and the word is the agora, or agora is the way you actually should say it, and you can put that down, the agora. It's the marketplace, the A-G-O-R-A. And when you hear marketplace, you think, oh, shopping mall, right? Shopping. He was in the shopping area. But you'd be misunderstanding what all is going on. Yes, there was shopping right there, but it wasn't just that. The marketplace was the center of the town in the Greek city-states. It was the agora. It was a central spot in ancient Greek city-states. The literal meaning of the word is gathering place or assembly. In fact, when the New Testament church, those of you here with us all along, you know that we talk about our church being called ecclesia. Well, the ecle in the Greek culture... The ecclesia met in the agora. You see, the ecclesia, the called community, gathered in the agora. And this would be the, the male property owners of this city. They gathered in the earliest forms of democracy to make decisions on behalf of the whole town. They gathered there in the agora. So it was a political center. Now, of course, this was the ancient use of it. So the literal meaning of the word is gathering place or assembly. And so what had happened is the Agora had become the center of athletic, artistic, spiritual, and political life. Think about it. How did you do a business deal back then? Did you send a letter? <laughs> did you look on email? Or did you go say, let's meet at the Agora? It was a center of finance. How did you, where did you perform your music? Often in the Agora. You see, um, it, the Agora was a central gathering place. He went to the center of the business world in that community. He went to, cent to the center of the art world in that community. He went to the center of the intellectual 
word. So he, this is what was happening in the Agora. Yes, he went into the synagogue too. It says, verse 17, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews, and he said, in the marketplace every day. So Paul finds his little spot to talk about the Christian message. He's trying to communicate the truth about Jesus into the intellectual, cultural, social, artistic, political, financial elite of that community, which was, of course, the center of the whole world in that result. And, of course, they didn't, they didn't uh, uh, appreciate it necessarily. They insulted him. They called him a babbler, which was, really means a word scatterer. It's a, it's, a, it's a word which talks about the jackdaw, which would come and pick up word seeds and pick them up and pa- pass them around, pick them up, pass them around. And it's the idea of a guy just picking up ideas from everywhere and dropping off here. No reason thought. It wasn't, a, it wasn't an insult that they, that they gave to him. And then they also, uh, there was a threat here as well. They thought he was proclaiming foreign divinities. Foreign divinities, Jesus and the resurrection. Some have thought that the way they pronounce resurrection in the Greek language, that someone might have thought that they were saying Jesus and his spouse, uh, Anastasis, or whatever. The, I forget how you say resurrection in, uh, uh, in, uh, in, in Greek. But in any case, these foreign divinities, which was a pretty important claim, because not too long before that, when Socrates was condemned, he was condemned for that very same cra- crime, preaching foreign divinities. And so they asked, may we know? Notice, will you tell us what's going on? So there's sort of a threat that's going on here. And who are the people who ask him about this? We're told about two different schools of thought. You see it in the 18th verse, Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. So let's think a little bit about those two things over the next two, next two headings under this first point. The Epicureans. Who were the Epicureans? You know, commonly, we think of the Epicureans as being purely hedonistic, pleasure-seeking, um, and also people who like to eat, right? The Epicurean palate, right? And that's, there's a, a component of that that's truth, but to do that is to kind of really misunderstand what Epicurus, the first Epicurean, about 250 years before Christ, was teaching. See, Epicurus found, uh, uh, found himself, and along with others, really frustrated by all these Greek gods flying around acting crazy in the world and being capricious. They seemed like they, had, they couldn't be trusted. And so he began to posit the idea, what if those gods are out there and they're really not involved with our world at all? They're just doing whatever they're doing, if they're there at all. And we're here alone in this universe and it's up to us to find the best way to live. See, what they had done is moved the gods, or we would say God, out of the, 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 the world around them. You see, away, away. Exists perhaps, but not part of my life, okay? And so what do we do? We begin to, uh, uh, we begin to find what's the best way to live. So they had kind of a dualistic view of the world. They held that the world and the gods were a long way apart from one another, and there was no communication. As a result, they decided what we should do is get on with life as best we can and seek to live a life of maximum pleasure. But this was not hedonistic pleasure at that point. It was like, what is the life of maximum pleasure? It is from a quiet, self-disciplined existence. The goal of life is happiness. Do the best that you can with life. And the best that we know is to live a good, disciplined life. See, this is a view of life which says gods, if they exist, are far away. 
and we're running the world. They were the first ones to really believe in the separation of church and state, I guess you would say. They were the first ones to believe that God's somewhere else, right? And in fact, we could talk about uh, it. That, that philosophy, as I said, was conquered by Christianity, but it began to reemerge in the 12th, 13th, 14th centuries when documents were found. And this idea of Epicureanism was at the core of the whole age of enlightenment. God's upstairs somewhere. There's no stairway in between, and he may have made the world. This is what led ultimately to the, the, the way of looking at life called deism, a God who maybe created the world but is not involved, you know, that sort of a thing. All right, so this was the philosophy of the Epicureans, okay? The gods that they exist are not involved. It's kind of a dualistic approach to life. Okay, the Stoics were the, the older school, and they were also very, that's the second, the, the Epicureans, and then secondly, the Stoics. The Stoics believed in a, a world where God was just uh, one with the universe. In a lot of ways, Stoics were pantheists. To, we often think that to be a Stoic is to be unfeeling, uncaring, but it kind of misses the largest, larger point. The, Sto the Stoics were determinists, pantheists. They believed that divinity lay within the present world and within every human being. They thought that this life force could be discovered and utilized. It was not a personal life source. It was just there. It was a rationality. They were looking for the logos, the logos, the rationality to figure out. And they felt the world was on its own track, determined. So we just need, that's why we become rather stoical. Don't get too involved because you can't control any of it anyway. Okay? Stoics and Epicureans. And so they had conversation about this. And so we see that the Apostle Paul was concerned to bring the gospel to the marketplace. And so they then invited him to go to the Areopagus. Okay? So that's the second thing that we want to see, the gospel on Mars Hill. Okay? Areopagus is the way you say Mars Hill. Okay? And uh, so... Uh, that, that's what the word meant. So we have the Agora, which was the marketplace, and we have the Areopagus, which was Mars Hill. Does that make sense? No? Have I lost you? All right, got it? Okay. Um, all right, so he begins now to speak in front of these people in the 22nd verse, and he says, So Paul, standing in the middle of the, the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, and you heard that read already before you. And I would like to draw out three ideas from this speech. It's a fascinating speech. It's been talked about, thought about, preached about, reflected on, because it's a very profound speech that he gave. We don't have time to go through all the details of it, but I would like you just to see a, a, a few things. The first thing you see about it is that the Apostle Paul, first of all, finds some common ground between the heartfelt notions of the culture and what it is that the gospel teaches. So the first thing you want to see, he wants them to know that there is a, the, the, the God, he wants them to see the God who is unknown. That's the first villain. The God who is unknown. He says, I'm walking around and I see all these gods. I see you're very religious people. He didn't say it turned his stomach to see it all. You're very religious people. And I noticed one, uh, I noticed one uh, altar to an unknown God. The God who is unknown. Then he says, that God which you have worshipped as unknown I've come to tell you about. You see? He found a connecting point between where people were and tried to bring them somewhere else where he could help them explain, uh, understand who God is. And so often, if you want to communicate with people, especially intellectual elite or people who are thinkers of people, listen carefully. Look carefully. 
see what's going on as the Apostle Paul did, and it's as if the Holy Spirit gave to him insight to say, these are some of the questions that these people have about life. I can see how the gospel begins to answer those kinds of questions. So it began with that common ground by referring to the God who is unknown. But what does he say about this God? He says, I'm going to declare him to you. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And going on, we see that what he is describing for us is the God, and this is the second thing, the God who is creator. He says, I want to speak to you about a creator God the creator God. He says he made the world and and everything in it. Since he's the creator God, he's not confined by the world like the Stoics thought. He's not limited inside the world like the Stoics believe. But also, as we shall see, this creator God has not left the world to its own devices, he says, as as the Epicureans believe. He is a God who wants to be known. He is the creator God. Remember, the Epicureans believed that the gods, if they existed at all, were far away and uninvolved. But Paul says, like in verse 27, he is not very far from us. So while he starts where they are, he confronts their ideologies in a way that makes sense. He says, this is the creator God. What what the apostle Paul did is gave them a big God, a God of creation, but a God who also was not very far of us. He's not bound up within the universe, but neither is he so far away. Now, I know this may feel a little bit obtuse to you, but these same two worldviews are very prevalent in our world today. There are many people who believe that God is in the tree and God is in the person and God is in the everything. They're pantheists. They're from the original, like these Stoics were. That's not the Christian teaching. Yeah. And there are also many people who believe that God, if he exists at all, is far away. In fact, there are a lot of Christians who live life this way as if all they want to do is get their head saved, their heart saved, so that somehow they can make this transition away from the world to that place in the sky far away someday and just make it through this veil of tears. That's not the Christian message as well either. God cares about the world. He's created this world. Why would he want to totally abandon it, you know? So in both cases... Paul affirms what he can in each philosophy, but he points how the gospel is significantly different from them both. He found a point of contact. He moves them forward, okay? That's the idea there. But there's a third thing that we see about this God. He says this is the God who is judge, the God who is judge. Notice what he says. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined a lot of the periods and boundaries of his dwelling place, that they should seek God in hope that they may find their way to him, although he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. And as some of your own poets have said, we are indeed his offspring. That's a Stoic philosopher. He's saying, you know, even the Stoic philosophers understand that God has created us, okay? Being then, verse 29, God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine beings like gold or silver, etc., etc. Verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance assurance to all by raising him from the dead. A lot of things are happening there in that that last little bit. 
He said he began by saying you're worshiping an unknown God. Basically, you're, you've admitted your ignorance about God. I'm going to tell you about them. He tells you about the God, and then he ends here at the end of the sermon by saying these times of ignorance God overlooked, but that time of ignorance is over. It's time for us to deal with the God who created the universe. He's calling these Epicureans and these Stoics to admit that their philosophy is uh, impotent to really answer the largest questions of life. And he says that there's some day when God is going to set the world right by a man whom he has appointed. And then he says that word which gets him kicked out of the assembly there by raising him from the dead. <laughs> it was always the resurrection. See, the resurrection is so important. He wants them to know that the times of ignorance are past. A new a moment in history has come. We live, he says, at the new moment in the history of the world. This God, Paul says, this creator God has set a time when he will exercise his right as a creator of the world. He will call it to account. He will judge the world. He will set the world right. And he will do it through a particular person, a man whom God raised from the dead. The resurrection was central to the apostolic preaching. Why? Not just because it proved Christ's divinity, but rather, in addition, because it proves that God's new world had begun. Jesus had gone through death, and he emerged out the other side with a brand new, remade body. The new age had begun in him, and through him, the whole cosmos begins a new age. Something new has come. And Luke didn't use the word, but John did when he spoke about Jesus, when he said, in the beginning was the Lagos, and the Lagos was with God, and the Lagos was God. So that whereas the Stoics were looking for the Lagos, the word, they were looking for the rationale, they were looking for an idea, for a formula, for a, 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 a way of thinking and expressing what did, Luke, what did John say about Jesus? That the Logos is not an idea. The Logos is a person. It's Jesus. And the Logos became flesh and lived among us, and we beheld his glory. Oh, the personal nature of this earth is something. We don't have time to talk about it, but it's a beautiful theological concept. So that the Logos is not just an idea, but it's a person with whom we can have relationship to whom we are accountable, who has come and given his life for us. Well, as soon as he mentioned the resurrection, they ridiculed his speech. They kicked him out of the place. Most people turn away, but there are a few that are converted. And so there we have probably Paul's least effective ministry presentation, <laughs> at least in the first case. But it did sweep across the world. So let's look then finally in the, in the, in the minutes we have left at the gospel not in the marketplace, not on Mars Hill, but the gospel on Black Mountain. Yeah, right here. Let's bring this forward to us today. What does all this mean for us? And I know some of you are saying this was boring. Well, I'm sorry. <laughs> I hope. That, well, I just need to understand some of these things because these ideas matter. Uh, there's a few things I think that we can take away from all this. Number one, we need to understand that the gospel addresses the culture. The gospel addresses the marketplace. The gospel affects everything about what we do. So please, don't privatize your faith. Engage people. 
I don't mean simply be a witness for Jesus, though of course you want to do that. I mean consider what the gospel has to say to your field of endeavor. The apostle parent was there in that marketplace. He's interacting with financial systems, uh, uh, entertainment systems, political systems, all these things, and he's trying to communicate the gospel in the midst of that. You should ask the question, what does the gospel have to say to me about how I do my career? What does the gospel have to say about my work and the things that I do? Don't just look it out there. Be very personable. You know, if I'm involved in, in the money business, as often we are, what the, how can I learn how to refuse our culture's worship of money? Instead, find ways to use money to serve people rather than to manipulate people. How can I, what does the gospel have to do with my involvement in finances? Not just my personal finances, though, of course, that, but also, you know, the whole financial structure, assuming maybe I'm involved in the mortgage business or that sort of a thing. Or the gospel as it relates to business. Can I see profit as not the end result of business, but rather as that which allows business to serve people, to serve people, to provide meaningful employment, to provide a good service to the community? Is there a way that I can twist upside? Because you know what they say, the business of business is what? Business, which just means essentially it's just there to kind of keep the whole thing going. But it's like saying the purpose of my body is to make blood. To, to make, well, I can't live without blood circulating my body, but I don't live to have blood circulating my body. The blood is there to help me do something. What is it that business is called to do besides just perpetuate itself? Or about the arts, if you're involved in the, I don't know, just lots of examples here. You know, arts are so important. Arts are what make us fundamentally human. It's sad that we minimize these things so much. Um, so how do, we how do we explore the meaning of the arts? We, often arts just evict the, the, the depravity and the, the yuckiness of life, which has a place in the arts. But can't we also depict redemption and, and beauty? And, and can't we use art also to elevate, not to denigrate? It's just some ideas. I don't know the answers to you. Or if you're involved in various service professions, uh, you know, waiting at tables or serving people in one way or another, how can you learn to view every act of service as an opportunity to emulate Jesus who came not to be served, but to serve? How can you find joy in serving people and knowing you're serving Jesus in the midst of that? You see, we're called to bring the power of the gospel into every sphere of our lives. Yeah, the gospel addresses the marketplace or the culture. Secondly, also the gospel addresses the academy or the intellect. The gospel addresses the intellect. The gospel can compete in the world of ideas. The gospel answers the heartfelt needs of humanity in a way that contemporary philosophy cannot. You know, we want in this culture to be a, a moral culture in one way or another, but we've cut the roots out of morality. There's no, we have moral feelings, but not moral ought. There's no way to have a moral ought without a God separate from the universe. We can have moral feelings. Does that make any sense? I feel it's right. Well, how do you know it's right? There needs to be a God out there. If you separate the roots out of morality, you have nothing but the voice of the people. It's the voice of God, which ultimately becomes just the voice of the people, right? It's just chaos, right? Vox populi, vox dei. Remember that phrase from school? Yeah, we have something to say in terms of how we 
speak to the intellectual and philosophical questions of it. That's not the uh, you know, interest of every person, but some of, some of you need to be doing that. To be reading and understanding to engage, not shrill, not angry, not misrepresenting, not doing it in a way which does dishonor to Jesus, but doing it in a way that was honorable like the Apostle Paul did. Don't embarrass the gospel by the way you pronounce the gospel. Yeah. We seek meaning in life. The gospel provides us. We love beauty in life. The gospel tells us why. We know there's a moral law. Somehow the gospel tells us why. The gospel answers the fundamental questions of our lives. And finally, the gospel addresses the heart. Ultimately, we need to respond to this good news ourselves. The apostle Paul said we need to repent. And then he said we need to believe. And then in verse 34, some of them joined and believed. At some point, you have to open your own heart to the gospel. There weren't very many that did it. Most people wouldn't respond. But there were a few. Some men joined and believed, among whom were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Yes, the gospel, it does, I'm convinced the more that I study, I'm convinced that the gospel provides the ultimate answers to the ultimate questions of our lives. There's no need to fear the intellectual elite, the philosophical systems. The gospel addresses our hearts, and we need to be responsive to it. Repent, which means to turn around to change our mind. Believe, which is to commit ourselves to him. And then it says, he joined with them. The men joined them. Become a part of our community. If you've been hanging around here and haven't yet responded to the gospel, today would be a great day to do that. Respond to him. If you need to learn more about these things, keep following up and learning what you can. But be like Dionysius or Damaris, the man and woman who got the name in the Bible because they said, I don't care what anybody else says about this. They all say it's foolish. I think it's true. Your name won't get in the Bible, but it will get in the Lamb's Book of Life. And that's pretty good trade. And by the way, Phoenix is the 92nd least Bible-minded city out of 100. We've got a job to do. We're in the top 10. We're, more Bible, we're less Bible-minded than the city of New York. They're 91. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful that you have given to us a gospel that doesn't just feel good but a gospel that makes sense. Oh, it makes such sense. It's counterintuitive, yes, but it strikes a chord of truth. Thank you that though Paul's message was discounted there in that day, that the continuing message of the gospel literally turned that world upside down. Help us to know that the gospel is as true today as it ever was, and that the culture is no less resistant to the gospel than it ever has been. Help us to embrace it. Help us to live it. Help us to share it. In Jesus' name.